Welcome. Season 2 of Black Clock Audio Tales. Season 10 of The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host and editor, El Dano Azul, a.k.a. The Blue Damage. This month on Black Clock Audio Tales, we will be talking about the Bronte Sisters, with weekly visits by Dr. Andrew Grace, who has a PhD in Dracula, and a master's in grave water drinking British writers who don't make it past 40. So here we go with Jane Eyre, and if you ever meet Andrew Grace, tell him that your favorite British author is Jane Eyre. Um, it won't make him pull his hair out at all. I've been friends with Drew for uh, a decade or so, so I, I know how to irritate him, and I don't recommend other people do it. Give him whiskey. If, if you meet Andrew Grace, give him whiskey or uh, Old Tom Gin. He loves Old Tom Gin. You know, the dark stuff that has all the spices in it? Good stuff. All right. Let's get going with some Brontes, and then, hey, um... Why not check out last month's stuff? We had some really cool stuff about August Derleth. We had some Carmilla read. We had some Donald Wandry stories, Derleth stories, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. A ton of H.P. Lovecraft in the very beginning of the month. We had some guests visit. We had Andrew Migliori from uh, Lurker Films come by. Uh, we had Adam Scott Glancy. Of course, Ken Height. We can't keep Ken Height off this podcast. But hey, you're here now. Help the show keep running like the smoothly oiled machine that it is by donating five, ten bucks to paypal.me slash pgttcm or go to pgttcm, that's People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, you know, what that stands for, pgttcm dot threadless dot com or go to pgttcm dot com and click on the store we've got some links there so check that out and hey uh why not check out our back catalog we've got all kinds of cool stuff did i just say that earlier i don't know anyway this month's gonna be great and we're super excited end of the month people's guide to the cthulhu mythos is going to be about icy space monsters like Athagwa. So we're probably going to have Ken Hyde on talking about Athagwa, Wendigos. I hope so. If not, hey, I'll fix this next week so it doesn't say that. All right, thank you again so much for listening, and let's get started with some Jane Eyre. This week we will be going with what Andrew Drace wants to call the first section of Jane Eyre, which is chapters 1 through 11, I believe. And then we'll have a lot more next week and a lot more the week after that. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 6. The next day commenced as before, getting up and dressing by rushlight. But this morning we were obliged to dispense with the ceremony of washing. The water in the pitchers was frozen. A change had taken place in the weather the preceding evening, and a keen northeast wind, whistling through the crevices of our bedroom windows all night long, had made us shiver in our beds, 
and turned the contents of the ewers to ice. Before the long hour and a half of prayers and Bible-reading was over, I felt ready to perish with cold. Breakfast-time came at last, and this morning the porridge was not burnt. The quality was eatable, the quantity small. How small my portion seemed! I wished it had been doubled. In the course of the day I was enrolled a member of the fourth class, and regular tasks and occupations were assigned me. Hitherto I had only been a spectator of the proceedings at Lowood. I was now to become an actor therein. At first, being little accustomed to learn by heart, the lessons appeared to me both long and difficult. The frequent change from task to task, too, bewildered me, and I was glad when about three o'clock in the afternoon, Miss Smith put into my hands a border of muslin two yards long, together with needle, thimble, etc., and sent me to sit in a quiet corner of the schoolroom, with directions to hem the same. At that hour most of the others were sewing likewise, but one class still stood round Miss Scatcherd's chair reading, and as all was quiet, the subject of their lessons could be heard, together with the manner in which each girl acquitted herself, and the animadversions or commendations of Miss Scatcherd on the performance. It was English history. Among the readers I observed my acquaintance of the veranda. At the commencement of the lesson, her place had been at the top of the class but for some error of pronunciation, or some inattention to stops, she was suddenly sent to the very bottom. Even in that obscure position, Miss Scatcherd continued to make her an object of constant notice. She was continually addressing to her such phrases as the following. "'Burns!' Such, it seems, was her name. The girls here were all called by their surnames, as boys are elsewhere. "'Burns, you are standing on the side of your shoe. Turn your toes out immediately.' "'Burns, you poke your chin most unpleasantly. Draw it in.' "'Burns, I insist on your holding your head up. I will not have you before me in that attitude.' Etc., etc. A chapter having been read through twice, the books were closed and the girls examined. The lesson had comprised part of the reign of Charles I, and there were sundry questions about tonnage and poundage and ship-money, which most of them appeared unable to answer. Still, every little difficulty was solved instantly when it reached Burns. Her memory seemed to have retained the substance of the whole lesson, and she was ready with answers on every point. I kept expecting that Miss Scatcherd would praise her attention, but instead of that she suddenly cried out, "'You dirty, disagreeable girl! You have never cleaned your nails this morning!' Burns made no answer. I wondered at her silence. Why, thought I, does she not explain that she could neither clean her nails nor wash her face, as the water was frozen? My attention was now called off by Miss Smith, desiring me to hold a skein of thread while she was winding it. She talked to me from time to time, asking whether I had ever been at school before, whether I could mark, stitch, knit, etc. Till she dismissed me, I could not pursue my observations on Miss Scatcherd's movements. When I returned to my seat, that lady was just delivering an order of which I did not catch the import, but Burns immediately left the class, and going into the small inner room where the books were kept, returned in half a minute, carrying in her hand a bundle of twigs tied together at one end. This ominous tool she presented to Miss Scatcherd with a respectful courtesy. Then she quietly, and without being told, unloosed her pinafore and the teacher instantly and sharply inflicted on her neck a dozen strokes with a bunch of twigs. Not a tear rose to Burns's eye, and while I paused from my sewing, because my fingers quivered at this spectacle with a sentiment of unavailing and impotent anger, 
not a feature of her pensive face altered its ordinary expression. "'Hardened girl!' exclaimed Miss Scatcherd. "'Nothing can correct you of your slatternly habits. Carry the rod away.' Burns obeyed. I looked at her narrowly as she emerged from the book-closet. She was just putting back her handkerchief into her pocket, and the trace of a tear glistened on her thin cheek. The play-hour in the evening I thought the pleasantest fraction of the day at Lowood. The bit of bread, the draught of coffee swallowed at five o'clock, had revived vitality, if it had not satisfied hunger. The long restraint of the day was slackened. The schoolroom felt warmer than in the morning, its fires being allowed to burn a little more brightly, to supply, in some measure, the place of candles not yet introduced. The ruddy gloaming, the licensed uproar, the confusion of many voices gave one a welcome sense of liberty. On the evening of the day on which I had seen Miss Scatcherd flog her pupil, Burns, I wandered as usual among the forms and tables and laughing groups without a companion, yet not feeling lonely. When I passed the windows, I now and then lifted a blind and looked out. It snowed fast, a drift was already forming against the lower panes. Putting my ear close to the window, I could distinguish from the gleeful tumult within, the disconsolate moan of the wind outside. Probably, if I had lately left a good home and kind parents, this would have been the hour when I should have most keenly regretted the separation. That wind would then have saddened my heart, this obscure chaos would have disturbed my peace. As it was, I derived from both a strange excitement and reckless and feverish I wished the wind to howl more wildly, the gloom to deepen to darkness, and the confusion to rise to clamour. Jumping over forms and creeping under tables, I made my way to one of the fireplaces. There, kneeling by the high wire fender, I found Burns, absorbed, silent, abstracted from all round her by the companionship of a book, which she read by the dim glare of the embers. "'Is it still Rasselas?' I asked, coming behind her. "'Yes,' she said, "'and I have just finished it.' And in five minutes more she shut it up. I was glad of this. Now, thought I, I can perhaps get her to talk. I sat down by her on the floor. "'What is your name besides Burns?' "'Helen. Do you come a long way from here?' "'I come from a place farther north, quite on the borders of Scotland.' Will you ever go back? I hope so, but nobody can be sure of the future. You must wish to leave Lowood. No, why should I? I was sent to Lowood to get an education, and it would be of no use going away until I have attained that object. But that teacher, Miss Scatcherd, is so cruel to you. Cruel? Not at all. She is severe. She dislikes my faults. And if I were in your place, I should dislike her. I should resist her. If she struck me with that rod, I should get it from her hand. I should break it under her nose. And probably you would do nothing of the sort. But if you did, Mr. Brocklehurst would expel you from the school. That would be a great grief to your relations. It is far better to endure patiently a smart which nobody feels but yourself, than to commit a hasty action whose evil consequences will extend to all connected with you. And besides, the Bible bids us return good for evil. But then it seems disgraceful to be flogged, and to be sent to stand in the middle of a room full of people. And you are such a great girl. I am far younger than you, and I could not bear it. Yes, it would be your duty to bear it, if you could not avoid it. 
It is weak and silly to say you cannot bear what it is your fate to be required to bear." I heard her with wonder. I could not comprehend this doctrine of endurance, and still less could I understand or sympathize with the forbearance she expressed for her chastiser. Still I felt that Helen Burns considered things by a light invisible to my eyes. I suspected she might be right and I wrong, but I would not ponder the matter deeply. Like Felix, I put it off to a more convenient season. "'You say you have faults, Helen. What are they? To me you seem very good.' "'Then learn from me not to judge by appearances. I am, as Miss Scatcherd said, slatternly. I seldom put and never keep things in order. I am careless. I forget rules. I read when I should learn my lessons. I have no method. And I sometimes say, like you, I cannot bear to be subjected to systematic arrangements. This is all very provoking to Miss Scatcherd, who is naturally neat, punctual, and particular." "'And cross, and cruel,' I added. But Helen Burns would not admit my addition. She kept silence. "'Is Miss Temple as severe to you as Miss Scatcherd?' At the utterance of Miss Temple's name a soft smile flitted over her grave face. Miss Temple is full of goodness. It pains her to be severe to any one, even the worst in the school. She sees my errors, and tells me of them gently, and if I do anything worthy of praise, she gives me my meed liberally. One strong proof of my wretchedly defective nature is, that even her expostulations, so mild, so rational, have not influence to cure me of my faults, and even her praise, though I value it most highly, cannot stimulate me to continued care and foresight." "'That is curious,' said I. "'It is so easy to be careful.' "'For you, I have no doubt it is. I observed you in your class this morning, and saw you were closely attentive. Your thoughts never seemed to wander while Miss Miller explained the lesson and questioned you. Now mine continually rove away. When I should be listening to Miss Scatcherd and collecting all she says with assiduity, often I lose the very sound of her voice. I fall into a sort of dream. Sometimes I think I am in Northumberland, and that the noises I hear round me are the bubbling of a little brook which runs through Deepton near our house. Then when it comes to my turn to reply, I have to be awakened, and having heard nothing of what was read for listening to the visionary brook, I have no answer ready." "'Yet how well you replied this afternoon!' It was mere chance. The subject on which we had been reading had interested me. This afternoon, instead of dreaming of Deepton, I was wondering how a man who wished to do right could act so unjustly and unwisely as Charles I sometimes did, and I thought what a pity it was that, with his integrity and conscientiousness, he could see no farther than the prerogatives of the crown, if he had but been able to look to a distance, and see how what they call the spirit of the age was tending. Still, I like Charles. I respect him. I pity him, poor murdered king. Yes, his enemies were the worst. They shed blood they had no right to shed. How dared they kill him!" Helen was talking to herself now. She had forgotten I could not very well understand her, that I was ignorant, or nearly so, of the subject she discussed. I recalled her to my level. "'And when Miss Temple teaches you, do your thoughts wander then?' "'No, certainly not often. Because Miss Temple has generally something to say which is newer than my own reflections, her language is singularly agreeable to me, and the information she communicates is often just what I wish to gain. Well, then, with Miss Temple you are good. 
Yes, in a passive way. I make no effort. I follow as inclination guides me. There is no merit in such goodness. A great deal. You are good to those who are good to you. It is all I ever desire to be. If people were always kind and obedient to those who are cruel and unjust, the wicked people would have it all their own way. They would never feel afraid, and so they would never alter, but would grow worse and worse. When we are struck out without a reason, we should strike back again very hard. I am sure we should, so hard as to teach the person who struck us never to do it again. You will change your mind, I hope, when you grow older. As yet you are but a little untaught girl. But I feel this, Helen. I must dislike those who, whatever I do to please them, persist in disliking me. I must resist those who punish me unjustly. It is as natural as that I should love those who show me affection, or submit to punishment when I feel it is deserved. Heathens and savage tribes hold that doctrine, but Christians and civilized nations disown it. How? I don't understand. It is not violence that best overcomes hate, nor vengeance that most certainly heals injury. What, then? Read the New Testament, and observe what Christ says, and how He acts. Make His word your rule, and His conduct your example. What does He say? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and despitefully use you. Then I should love Mrs. Reed, which I cannot do. I should bless her son John, which is impossible." In her turn, Helen Burns asked me to explain, and I proceeded forthwith to pour out in my own way the tale of my sufferings and resentments. Bitter and truculent when excited, I spoke as I felt, without reserve or softening. Helen heard me patiently to the end. I expected she would then make a remark, but she said nothing. Well. I asked impatiently, is not Mrs. Reed a hard-hearted, bad woman? She has been unkind to you, no doubt. Because, you see, she dislikes your cast of character, as Miss Scatcherd does mine. But how minutely you remember all she has done and said to you! What a singularly deep impression her injustice seems to have made on your heart! No ill-usage so brands its record on my feelings. Would you not be happier if you tried to forget her severity, together with the passionate emotions it excited? Life appears to me too short to be sent in nursing animosity or registering wrongs. We are, and must be, one and all, burdened with faults in this world. But the time will soon come when, I trust, we shall put them off in putting off our corruptible bodies, when debasement and sin will fall from us with this cumbrous frame of flesh, and only the spark of the spirit will remain the impalpable principle of light and thought, pure as when it left the Creator to inspire the creature. Whence it came, it will return, perhaps again to be communicated to some being higher than man, perhaps to pass through gradations of glory, from the pale human soul to brighten to the seraph. Surely it will never, on the contrary, be suffered to degenerate from man to fiend. No, I cannot believe that. I hold another creed which no one ever taught me, and which I seldom mention, but in which I delight, and to which I cling. For it extends hope to all, it makes eternity a rest, a mighty home, not a terror and an abyss. Besides, with this creed I can so clearly distinguish between the criminal and his crime, I can so sincerely forgive the first while I abhor the last. With this creed revenge never worries my heart, 
degradation never too deeply disgusts me, injustice never crushes me too low. I live in calm, looking to the end." Helen's head, always drooping, sank a little lower as she finished this sentence. I saw by her look she wished no longer to talk to me, but rather to converse with her own thoughts. She was not allowed much time for meditation. A monitor, a great, rough girl, presently came up, exclaiming in a strong Cumberland accent, "'Helen Burns, if you don't go and put your drawer in order and fold up your work this minute, I'll tell Miss Scatcherd to come and look at it.' Helen sighed as her reverie fled, and getting up, obeyed the monitor without reply as without delay. End of chapter 6「ブラックホーク Audio Tales」is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com check them out check out their cool fun novelty slippers that they have zombies halflings Cthulhu's all kinds of cool stuff cute forest creatures ones that you can plug into USB drives to keep your feet warm yeah bunnyslippers.com proudly sponsoring the Cthulhu mythos and weird fiction for I don't know four years now? Something like that. Bunnyslippers.com. And hey, why not help out the show by going to pgttcm.threadless.com and picking up one of our cool Join a Cult t-shirts or our Ratfink-inspired Sathogla and Elatnacha t-shirt. And hey, uh, why not donate a buck or two or five or twenty or be really cool and keep the show going for like six months, like a hundred dollars. I don't expect anyone to donate a hundred dollars. Anyway, if you do want to donate like even like a dollar, go to paypal.me slash pgttcm. That is pgttcm as in People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Our monthly show that we do the last Tuesday of the month, we're going to be talking about a thogwa, and it's pgttcm.com. I'm going to try and update it this weekend, so people will be able to navigate it better. All right, back to the show. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 7. My first quarter at Lowood seemed an age, and not the golden age either. It comprised an irksome struggle with difficulties in habituating myself to new rules and unwonted tasks. The fear of failure in these points harassed me worse than the physical hardships of my lot, though these were no trifles. During January, February, and part of March, the deep snows, and after their melting the almost impassable roads, prevented our stirring beyond the garden walls, except to go to church. But within these limits we had to pass an hour every day in the open air. Our clothing was insufficient to protect us from the severe cold. We had no boots, the snow got into our shoes and melted there. Our ungloved hands became numbed and covered with chilblains, as were our feet. I remember well the distracting irritation I endured from this cause every evening, when my feet inflamed and the torture of thrusting the swelled, raw, and stiff toes into my shoes in the morning. Then the scanty supply of food was distressing. With the keen appetites of growing children, we had scarcely sufficient to keep alive a delicate invalid. From this deficiency of nourishment resulted an abuse, 
which pressed hardly on the younger pupils. Whenever the famished great girls had an opportunity, they would coax or menace the little ones out of their portion. Many a time I have shared between two claimants the precious morsel of brown bread distributed at tea-time, and after relinquishing to a third half the contents of my mug of coffee, I have swallowed the remainder with an accompaniment of secret tears, forced from me by the exigency of hunger. Sundays were dreary days in that wintry season. We had to walk two miles to Brocklebridge Church, where our patron officiated. We set out cold, we arrived at church colder, during the morning service we became almost paralysed. It was too far to return to dinner, and an allowance of cold meat and bread, in the same penurious proportion observed in our ordinary meals, was served round between the services. At the close of the afternoon service we returned by an exposed and hilly road, where the bitter winter wind, blowing over a range of snowy summits to the north, almost flayed the skin from our faces. I can remember Miss Temple walking lightly and rapidly along our drooping line, her plaid cloak, which the frosty wind fluttered, gathered close about her, and encouraging us by precept and example to keep up our spirits and march forward, as she said, like stalwart soldiers. The other teachers, poor things, were generally themselves too much dejected to attempt the task of cheering others. How we longed for the light and heat of a blazing fire when we got back! But to the little ones at least this was denied. Each hearth in the schoolroom was immediately surrounded by a double row of great girls, and behind them the younger children crouched in groups, wrapping their starved arms in their pinafores. A little solace came at tea-time in the shape of a double ration of bread, a whole instead of a half slice, with the delicious addition of a thin scrape of butter. It was the hebdomadal treat to which we all looked forward from Sabbath to Sabbath. I generally contrived to reserve a moiety of this bounteous repast for myself, but the remainder I was invariably obliged to part with. The Sunday evening was spent in repeating by heart the church catechism, and the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of St. Matthew, and in listening to a long sermon read by Miss Miller, whose irrepressible yawns attested her weariness. A frequent interlude of these performances was the enactment of the part of Eutychus by some half-dozen of little girls, who overpowered with sleep would fall down, if not out of the third loft, yet off the fourth form, and be taken up half-dead. The remedy was to thrust them forward into the centre of the schoolroom, and oblige them to stand there till the sermon was finished. Sometimes their feet failed them, and they sank together in a heap. They were then propped up with the monitor's high stools. I have not yet alluded to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst, and indeed that gentleman was from home during the great part of the first month after my arrival, perhaps prolonging his stay with his friend the Archdeacon. His absence was a relief to me. I need not say that I had my own reasons for dreading his coming, but come he did at last. One afternoon—I had then been three weeks at Lowood, as I was sitting with a slate in my hand, puzzling over a sum in long division, my eyes, raised in abstraction to the window, caught sight of a figure just passing. I recognised almost instinctively that gaunt outline and when, two minutes after, all the school, teachers included, rose en masse, it was not necessary for me to look up in order to ascertain whose entrance they thus greeted. 
A long stride measured the schoolroom, and presently beside Miss Temple, who had herself risen, stood the same black column which had frowned on me so ominously from the hearthrug of Gateshead. I now glanced sideways at this piece of architecture. Yes, I was right. It was Mr. Brocklehurst, buttoned up in a surtout, and looking longer, narrower, and more rigid than ever. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. Too well I remembered the perfidious hints given by Mrs. Reed about my disposition, etc. The promise pledged by Mr. Brocklehurst to apprise Miss Temple and the teachers of my vicious nature. All along I had been dreading the fulfilment of this promise. I had been looking out daily for the coming man, whose information respecting my past life and conversation was to brand me as a bad child for ever. Now there he was. He stood at Miss Temple's side. He was speaking low in her ear. I did not doubt he was making disclosures of my villainy, and I watched her eye with painful anxiety, expecting every moment to see its dark orb turn on me a glance of repugnance and contempt. I listened, too, and as I happened to be seated quite at the top of the room, I caught most of what he said. Its import relieved me from immediate apprehension. I suppose, Miss Temple, the thread I bought at Lowton will do. It struck me that it would be just of the quality for the calico chemises, and I sorted the needles to match. You may tell Miss Smith that I forgot to make a memorandum of the darning needles, but she shall have some papers sent in next week, and she is not on any account to give out more than one at a time to each pupil. If they have more, they are apt to be careless and lose them." And, oh, ma'am, I wish the woollen stockings were better looked to. When I was here last, I went into the kitchen garden and examined the clothes drying on the line. There was a quantity of black hose in a very bad state of repair. From the size of the holes in them, I was sure they had not been well mended from time to time." He paused. "'Your directions shall be attended to, sir,' said Miss Temple. "'And, ma'am,' he continued, the laundress tells me some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week. It is too much. The rules limit them to one." "'I think I can explain that circumstance, sir. Agnes and Catherine Johnston were invited to take tea with some friends at Lowton last Thursday, and I gave them leave to put on clean tuckers for the occasion." Mr. Brocklehurst nodded. "'Well, for once it may pass.' but please not to let the circumstance occur too often. And there is another thing which surprised me. I find in settling accounts with the housekeeper that a lunch, consisting of bread and cheese, has twice been served out to the girls during the past fortnight. How is this? I looked over the regulations, and I find no such meal as lunch mentioned. Who introduced this innovation, and by what authority? I must be responsible for the circumstance, sir," replied Miss Temple. The breakfast was so ill-prepared that the pupils could not possibly eat it, and I dared not allow them to remain fasting till dinner-time. Madam, allow me an instant. You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Should any little accidental disappointment of the appetite occur, such as the spoiling of a meal, the under or the overdressing of a dish, 
The incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing with something more delicate the comfort lost, thus pampering the body and obviating the aim of this institution. It ought to be improved to the spiritual edification of the pupils by encouraging them to evince fortitude under temporary privation. A brief address on those occasions would not be mistimed, wherein a judicious instructor would take the opportunity of referring to the sufferings of the primitive Christians, to the torments of martyrs, to the exhortations of our blessed Lord Himself, calling upon His disciples to take up their cross and follow Him, to His warnings that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, to His divine consolations. If ye suffer hunger or thirst for my sake, happy are ye. O oh, madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burnt porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile bodies, but you little think how you starve their immortal souls. Mr. Brocklehurst again paused, perhaps overcome by his feelings. Miss Temple had looked down when he first began to speak to her. But she now gazed straight before her, and her face, naturally pale as marble, appeared to be assuming also the coldness and fixity of that material, especially her mouth, closed as if it would have required a sculptor's chisel to open it, and her brow settled gradually into petrified severity. Meantime Mr. Brocklehurst, standing on the hearth with his hands behind his back, majestically surveyed the whole school. Suddenly his eye gave a blink, as if it had met something that either dazzled or shocked its pupil. Turning, he said in more rapid accents than he had hitherto used, "'Miss Temple, Miss Temple, what—what what is that girl with curled hair? Red hair, ma'am, curled, curled all over!' And extending his cane, he pointed to the awful object, his hand shaking as he did so. "'It is Julius Seven replied Miss Temple very quietly. "'Julia Seven, ma'am! And why has she or any other curled hair? Why, in defiance of every precept and principle of this house, does she conform to the world so openly, here, in an evangelical charitable establishment, as to wear her hair one mass of curls?' "'Julia's hair curls naturally,' returned Miss Temple, still more quietly. "'Naturally?' Yes, but we are not to conform to nature. I wish these girls to be the children of grace. And why that abundance? I have again and again intimated that I desire the hair to be arranged closely, modestly, plainly. Miss Temple, that girl's hair must be cut off entirely. I will send a barber to-morrow. And I see others who have far too much of the excrescence. That tall girl, tell her to turn round. Tell all the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall." Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips, as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. Leaning a little back on my bench, I could see the looks and grimaces with which they commented on this manoeuvre. It was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see them too. He would perhaps have felt that, Whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and platter, the inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. He scrutinized the reverse of these living medals some five minutes, then pronounced sentence. These words fell like the knell of doom. All those top-knots must be cut off. Miss Temple seemed to remonstrate. 
"'Madam,' he pursued, "'I have a master to serve whose kingdom is not of this world. My mission is to mortify in these girls the lusts of the flesh, to teach them to clothe themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair and costly apparel. And each of the young persons before us has a string of hair twisted in plates, which vanity itself might have woven. These, I repeat, must be cut off. Think of the time wasted of—Mr. Brocklehurst was here interrupted. Three other visitors, ladies, now entered the room. They ought to have come a little sooner to have heard his lecture on dress, for they were splendidly attired in velvet, silk, and furs. The two younger of the trio, fine girls of sixteen and seventeen, had grey beaver hats, then in fashion, shaded with ostrich plumes, and from under the brim of this graceful headdress fell a profusion of light tresses, elaborately curled. The elder lady was enveloped in a costly velvet shawl, trimmed with ermine, and she wore a false front of French curls. These ladies were deferentially received by Miss Temple, as Mrs. and the Misses Brocklehurst, and conducted to seats of honour at the top of the room. It seems they had come in the carriage with their reverend relative, and had been conducting a rummaging scrutiny of the rooms upstairs, while he transacted business with the housekeeper, questioned the laundress, and lectured the superintendent. They now proceeded to address divers remarks and reproofs to Miss Smith, who was charged with the care of the linen and inspection of the dormitories. But I had no time to listen to what they said. Other matters called off and enchanted my attention. Hitherto, while gathering up the discourse of Mr. Brocklehurst and Miss Temple, I had not at the same time neglected precautions to secure my personal safety, which I thought would be effected if I could only elude observation. To this end I had sat well back on the form, and while seeming to be busy with my sum, had held my slate in such a manner as to conceal my face. I might have escaped notice had not my treacherous slate somehow happened to slip from my hand, and falling with an obtrusive crash, directly drawn every eye upon me. I knew it was all over now, and as I stooped to pick up the two fragments of slate, I rallied my forces for the worst. It came. "'A careless girl!' said Mr. Brocklehurst, and immediately after, "'It is the new pupil, I perceive.' And before I could draw breath, I must not forget, I have a word to say respecting her." Then aloud, how loud it seemed to me, "'Let the child who broke her slate come forward.' Of my own accord I could not have stirred. I was paralysed. But the two great girls who sit on each side of me, set me on my legs and pushed me towards the dread judge. And then Miss Temple gently assisted me to his very feet, and I caught her whispered counsel. "'Don't be afraid, Jane.' I saw it was an accident. You shall not be punished." The kind whisper went to my heart like a dagger. Another minute, and she will despise me for a hypocrite, thought I. And an impulse of fury against Reed, Brocklehurst and Company bounded in my pulses at the conviction. I was no Helen Burns. "'Fetch that stool,' said Mr. Brocklehurst, pointing to a very high one from which a monitor had just risen. It was brought. Place the child upon it." And I was placed there, by whom I don't know. I was in no condition to note particulars. I was only aware that they had hoisted me up to the height of Mr. Brocklehurst's nose, that he was within a yard of me, and that a spread of shot orange and purple silk pelisses, and a cloud of silvery plumage extended and waved below me. Mr. Brocklehurst hemmed. "'Ladies,' said he, turning to his family, 
Miss Temple, teachers and children, you all see this girl. Of course they did, for I felt their eyes directed like burning glasses against my scorched skin. You see she is yet young. You observe she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No signal deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant and agent in her? Yet such, I grieve to say, is the case." A pause, in which I began to steady the palsy of my nerves, and to feel that the Rubicon was passed, and that the trial no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. "'My dear children,' pursued the black marble clergyman with pathos, "'this is a sad, a melancholy occasion, for it becomes my duty to warn you, that this girl, who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway, not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper, and an alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, avoid her company, exclude her from your sports, and shut her out from your converse. Teachers, you must watch her. Keep your eyes on her movements, weigh well her words, scrutinize her actions, punish her body to save her soul, if indeed such salvation be possible. For—my tongue falters while I tell it—this girl, this child, the native of a Christian land, worse than many a little heathen who says its prayers to Brahma and kneels before Juggernaut, this girl is—a liar. Now came a pause of ten minutes, during which I, by this time in perfect possession of my wits, observed all the female Brocklehursts produce their pocket-handkerchiefs, and apply them to their optics, while the elderly lady swayed herself to and fro, and the two younger ones whispered, "'How shocking!' Mr. Brocklehurst resumed. "'This I learned from her benefactress from the pious and charitable lady who adopted her in her orphan state, reared her as her own daughter, and whose kindness, whose generosity the unhappy girl repaid by an ingratitude so bad, so dreadful, that at last her excellent patroness was obliged to separate her from her own young ones, fearful lest her vicious example should contaminate their purity. She has sent her here to be healed even as the Jews of old sent their disease to the troubled pool of Bethesda. And teachers, superintendent, I beg of you not to allow the waters to stagnate round her." With this sublime conclusion, Mr. Brocklehurst adjusted the top button of his surtout, muttered something to his family, who rose, bowed to Miss Temple, and then all of the great people sailed in state from the room. Turning at the door, my judge said, "'Let her stand half an hour longer on that stool, and let no one speak to her during the remainder of the day.' There was I, then, mounted aloft. I, who had said I could not bear the shame of standing on my natural feet in the middle of the room, was now exposed to general view on a pedestal of infamy. What my sensations were, no language can describe. But just as they all rose, stifling my breath and constricting my throat, a girl came up and passed me. In passing, she lifted her eyes. What a strange light inspired them! What an extraordinary sensation that ray sent through me! How the new feeling bore me up! 
It was as if a martyr, a hero, had passed a slave or victim, and imparted strength in the transit. I mastered the rising hysteria, lifted up my head, and took a firm stand on the stool. Helen Burns asked some slight question about her work of Miss Smith, was chidden for the triviality of the inquiry, returned to her place, and smiled at me again as she went by. What a smile! I remember it now, and I know that it was the effluence of fine intellect, of true courage. It lit up her marked lineaments, her thin face, her sunken grey eye, like a reflection from the aspect of an angel. Yet at that moment Helen Burns wore on her arm the untidy badge. Scarcely an hour ago I had heard her condemned by Miss Scatcherd to a dinner of bread and water on the morrow, because she had blotted an exercise in copying it out. Such is the imperfect nature of man. Such spots are there on the disk of the clearest planet, and eyes like Miss Scatcherd's can only see those minute defects, and are blind to the full brightness of the orb. End of chapter 7 Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you again. If you have any suggestions for next year on what you'd like to hear in classic literature, public domain, weird fiction, do you have a story that you want to read on Black Clock Audio Tales? Contact me, record it, con and then send it to me. I mean, things don't have to be perfect. I mean, you hear some of these. I, I clean up the audio and edit out a lot of the ums and, like, you know, try and filter out uh, people's family members walking around in the background turning the sink on when mom's recording, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, hey, if you want to be a part of it, contact us at, you know, go to, go to PGTTCM and, and, and click the contact. And hey, there's really not that much else I can tell you except for keep supporting the show. PayPal.me slash PGTTCM, PGTTCM.threadless.com, and I love you. <laughs>